Hi, I'm Carlos Carrasco. You may remember me from appearances on Star Trek Voyager and Deep Space Nine, including Degore from the House of Quark. And I'm here with Matthew Kaplowitz, and you are listening to Trek Untold. Kapla! Welcome back to Trek Untold, the Star Trek podcast that goes beyond the stars. I'm your host, Matthew Kaplowitz. This week, we have a veteran of the industry whose roles in Star Trek were perpetually as aliens. In other words, you never saw how he really looked, but once you do see his face, you're going to recognize him from his work instantly. And that actor is Carlos Carrasco. Carlos appeared four times in the franchise, three of those on DS9 and one on Voyager. On DS9, you may remember him as the Klingon named Degore from the House of Quark, and later on, a Klingon Alliance officer on the Mirror Universe episode, Shattered Mirror. He was also a pretty interesting-looking alien named Kroll from Honor Among Thieves, that weird film noir O'Brien episode that saw the chief of engineering go undercover for Starfleet. Not to leave out Voyager, of course, where he played the fur coat-wearing manager of a space station named Barat in the Neil-eccentric episode, Fair Trade. Beyond Star Trek, you've seen Carlos's face in things like Speed, The Equalizer, Crocodile Dundee 2, The Fisher King, Renegade, ER, Can't Hurry Love, Parks and Rec, CSI, and in more recent times, a lot of really fun indie horror films, including Diablo Rojo Pty and the upcoming Cholo Zombies Monstro. I never get to say words like that in this podcast, so I gotta throw it in there. After hearing some of those roles, you might be surprised to know that this artist also has Shakespearean roots and a very long resume in the theater. And through my chat with him today, his skills really shined in a way that I feel like he may not have had the chance to do quite often in many of his on-screen roles. I definitely have a much greater appreciation and admiration for him after we spoke, and I believe you will too after you hear this podcast. But really, this intro doesn't do him enough justice. I can't stop saying enough good things about this guy, and I'd really just rather you meet the man himself. So let's take a deep dive into the life and career of Carlos Carrasco. But before we begin this week's episode, I want to remind you to follow Trek Untold on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Trek Untold, all one word. You can get show updates, check out some fun memes, and let me know what you think about what's going on with the current events in the Star Trek universe. You can also support this show directly on Patreon at patreon.com slash trekuntold, where you can support this show for as little as $2 a month. At higher tiers, you can listen to the shows before they come out, know about my guests well in advance, and even have a chance to ask them questions, get transcripts of these episodes to make sure you get all the info, and more benefits coming soon, including watch parties and live streams. But that's all dependent on more fans like you coming over and letting me know you want to be a part of events like that. If you want some Trek Untold merchandise, check out our store for gear and apparel, including shirts, hats, stickers, water bottles, notebooks, and a whole lot more. New designs will be added throughout the year, so it's always worth taking a peek. Trek Untold also has an Amazon shop where you can peruse everything Star Trek, sci-fi, and geeky on Amazon in one convenient location. If you're looking for a gift for the Trekkie in your life, or maybe want to see some of my favorite non-Star Trek things that you can get for yourself, check out the link for my Amazon shop in the show notes on the audio version and in the description below this video on YouTube. If you're listening to us on iTunes or any other audio platforms that allow for ratings and reviews, please leave us a five-star rating and a positive review to help out this show. 
If you're watching it on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe to us at youtube.com slash nerdnewstoday and give the video a thumbs up and a comment. All of these things help more people find this show and to continue growing and bringing you awesome guests each and every week. And by the way, check out the 8th Annual Panamanian International Film Festival in Los Angeles. It's happening this November 18th through the 20th at Avenida Studios, and Carlos is the organizer of this event. So if you want to meet him after listening to this interview and say hello, then this is the way to do it, while also supporting a really stellar film festival. Just make sure to tell Carlos that Trek Untold sent you. Visit PIFFLA.com for more details. And if you can't make it this year, make sure to follow them on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at PIFF Los Angeles to stay up to date on all future events from this festival and more. Now, without further ado, let's beam in this week's guest. Computer, access interview file. And welcome back to Trek Untold. And now joining us on the other side of the screen, no, he is not the baseball player. Uh, we are joined today by the actor with the same name, Mr. Carlos Carrasco. Carlos, how's it going today? I am fine, thank you. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for being here today. And yeah, I got to tell you, when I was like starting to do my research for you, I type in your name and the first things that pops up are baseball things. And I'm like, how often do you get mistaken for that guy? <laughs> well, we do kind of run in different circles, so it's not too frequent, you know, <laughs> but I, all the best to him. I don't know if he knows who I am, but, um, you know. Well, he wasn't part of the Star Trek universe, so in my opinion, he doesn't matter. Yeah. So, yeah, we've got a whole bunch of things to talk about, Trek-related and many, many other things in your career. But, uh, Carlos, I want to get started first with just finding out some background information about you. And I want to ask you the first question I ask all my guests, and that's, uh, what's your earliest memory of Star Trek? Did you grow up watching it? Okay, uh, yes. I, uh, okay. I, I'm not from this country. I grew up in Panama. And I'm giving away my age because when I was, uh, I'm, I'm talking about the 50s, early 60s, uh, the first television that we had down there was actually, there were mil U.S. military bases down there. And we had the, uh, what they called the Southern Command Network. And they used to broadcast American television shows down there, you know, Gunsmoke, Have Gun Will Travel, all those old classics. And I was still down there when the Star Trek thing started to happen. And uh, so I did actually catch a few early episodes of Star Trek um, in Panama hmm. on the Southern Command Armed Forces Network. Wow. <laughs> I'm curious to find out, like, was that dubbed or was that subtitled? No, no, no. It was in English because, you know, we're talking about U.S. military. So this okay. was a broadcast set up for to service, basically, because... Um, before the year 2000, when the Panama Canal Treaty went into effect and everything, uh, and the U.S. really left, uh, they had quite a presence down there. Uh, and they had, a, a, they had a military bases for all of the major services, Navy, U.S., Air Force, Army. And, uh, and so they had their own entertainment uh, network set up. So I saw a lot of my early exposure to um, American film and television and everything was uh, on the uh, U.S. Armed Forces Network in the original English. That's quite a different experience. That was not the story I was expecting. That's really cool, though. <laughs> <laughs> 
But yeah, you know, we all. And by the way, I'm not going to out your age on this show here, but I'm going to say I, I did look up. I got that information, and you do not look that age, sir. You are, you are gorgeous. So let me just tell you that. But uh... oh my God, thank you so much. You know, you're not so bad yourself. My oh, you. <laughs> but yeah, let's let's talk a little more about you growing up. Because uh, yeah, I read that you were born in Panama and grew up there. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about your parents and what they did, and uh, what little Carlos wanted to be when he grew up. Wow. Well, uh, little Carlos, uh, my parents were, uh, we, we grew up, uh, pretty solid middle class. You know, my, my dad was, uh, was a certified public accountant. My mother was an English teacher. Interestingly enough, they both had advanced degrees, uh, from the States. My mother, uh, did a postgrad at Ann Arbor in Michigan, wrote her graduate thesis on Eugene O'Neill. And my dad, uh, also, he got his MBA at the University of Minnesota. This was all back in the 50s and stuff. Then they went back back to Panama, and we grew up uh, pretty middle class and stuff, went to private Catholic school. Oh, yes, 12 years with the nuns, Mm-mm-mm-mm, and got the scars to show it. Is that uh, like you have a fear of rulers now? <laughs> yeah, we have the rulers. And, uh, and I actually once was falsely accused of saying a cuss word, and in in old school Catholic tradition, the nun made me come up to the front of the of, of the of the classroom and shaved off a piece of soap and put it in my mouth, and I had to stand there for the rest of the period, you know, because you know I had to wash out that dirty mouth. Mm. Those days are long gone. But, you know, but, you know, when you see stuff like uh, Sister Mary Ignatius explains it all for you, those kind of shows and stuff, I go, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, been there, done that, you know. So I grew up there, and actually, in terms of acting, that's where I started acting, because somewhere around, uh, ooh, I was in uh, seventh grade or something like that, and the nun came up to me. And by the way, these were American nuns uh, who were down there. It was a, it was a missionary order. And uh, so Sister Sister Kathleen Mary came up to me and said, we're doing a Christmas play this year, and you're going to be in it. It's a play called Amal and the Night Visitors, which is actually an operetta by Giancarlo Menotti. And it's about a little boy on a crutch who who lives at an inn run by his mother back in the day on the first Christmas, and there's a knock on the door, and these three gentlemen show up, and it's the three wise men, and they are the night visitors, and there's this whole little play. It's like an extended one-act operetta, and uh, and I got my own little crutch, and I played Amal, and uh, so I was the lead in the little Christmas play at the Catholic school, and I liked it. <laughs> wow so first role and already pushed into stardom you're the top bill on that on that credit there wow that's right and so the whole thing started in catholic school with a little crutch you know and then I, and then i got hungry for it i just really found that i really enjoyed that that was you know when you finally especially at those young ages when you're kind of searching and i was easily distracted in those days. I was bored. I was kind of a troublemaker at school. And and they even said a lot of it was because I was just, you know, kind of, I, I had a bigger mind than they could keep occupied. And But once I, I, I got that little acting bug and I really liked that, I really felt, I really felt like fulfilled doing that, you know? And uh, so I kept looking around for opportunities for more of that. And I'm sad to say they were very few and far between, um, you know, in, in Panama. In fact, 
most of the opportunities that I found to actually continue doing theater or anything were in the canal zone with the, uh, um, uh, it has to be explained, slight parenthesis that after the United States built the Panama Canal and they sort of ran it for like 75 years or so, uh, it's a big operation and it's got a lot of infrastructure and it requires a lot of people. So in addition to all of the military bases, that was just defense. The actual running of the canal itself was a huge, huge civilian operation. So there were, I think at its highest point, there were something like 10,000 U.S. civilians living there full time in the canal zone. And of course, they all had children who needed to go to schools and they needed, you know, entertainment and things like that. So they had their own little theater guilds and things like that. And so I managed to discover theater um, with, with the Americans. And I was able to get involved with, um, you know, like, like uh, what do they call it? Community theater. Hmm, okay. You know, doing all those plays, you know, My Fair Lady and stuff like that. Um, Our Town. Our Town. <laughs> all, of the, all of the American theater classics, they would do them there. You know, community theater, whatever. And then once a year, they would do a huge, huge United Fund musical that the entire canal zone was involved in. And one of the military bands would be the orchestra band uh, or the in the pit band, uh, like the, the U.S. Army Air Force band or whatever. And so those were fun. And that was kind of really my first real, like doing theater for real, you know, like yeah. orchestras and things like that. And then I got a very, very fortunate break. I never leave this gentleman out of my story. Uh, you know, because you often hear about if you're fortunate in your lifetime, you will meet one or two angels. Um, mentorship is very important. I've come to believe in that a lot because I went to, I did my first two years of college in the Canal Zone because they did have, they, you could go to school in the Canal Zone in the American system. Uh, the, the highest grade level was junior college. They even had a little junior college. And by then people were like, okay, go to the States, whatever. So I managed to talk my parents into enrolling me in the junior college at the Canal Zone, which is when I really first had like organized theater experiences and a real theater teacher and a director. And this gentleman took a real liking to me. He took me under his wing. He became my first real teacher, director, mentor, friend, drinking buddy. And one day he said to me, listen, come to my office. We have to talk. And so I did. And he said, OK, so like you're done here. This is junior college. And he said, but, you know, I think that you you have something. I think you should go out. You should be out in the world. What do you do? You have any plans or are you just going to hang around here and party and, you know, and smoke weed all night? And I'm like, yeah, man, what's wrong with that? And he said, well, I have some paperwork here. I want us to sit down and we're going to fill this all out together. And what he had was an application for an acting scholarship at a private college in Missouri. <laughs> and so he made it our, our joint project and we filled it all out together. And I ran around, got my letters of recommendation, my, my grades and stuff. And then he packaged the whole thing, sent it off. And then he called me at home about a few months later and he said, guess what? You are going to the US because you got that scholarship. And that is how I came to the United States as an acting student on a scholarship to Stevens College in Columbia, Missouri. And that completely, completely changed my life. I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you right now if it hadn't been for David Lohman, 
my mentor and first really, really important teacher back in the Canal Zoom. May he rest in peace because shortly thereafter he passed away. Um, and he was a young man. He wasn't even 40. But, you know, but he is directly responsible for everything that has gone on in my life since. Well, shout out again to David Lohman. Let's, uh, let's get that name out there. Yeah. Thank you one more time to him. Yeah. So uh, what, what a cool story, too, by the way. That's such an amazing journey. And it, I also have to just note here, like, the irony that, you know, you're going from the theater world and his last name is Lohman. I mean, death of a salesman. Come on. Hey, <laughs> it was a sign. Come on. Yeah. He actually was also a very wonderful actor. So um, so I learned by watching, by following, by, uh, you know, he was, a, he was a great guy. You know, and then I spent the next actually six years um, bouncing around the Midwest because um, I got I got hit to the uh, the scholarship thing. Is it like, oh, hey, you can go to college for free? Ooh, pretty sweet. Yeah, I know. So I and then of course I was here on a student visa. You know, and I wanted to stay because oh, hey, now I'm in the U.S. and I, one day I'll get to Hollywood and all that. But how do I stay in the country? You know, so I needed to keep renewing that student visa every year. So I made it my business. Mama didn't raise no dummies either. So I made it my business every every year to go about midway through the school year to go into the library and start researching and researching scholarships and scholarship programs at other places. And it worked because I did my two years at Stevens. By the time I graduated Stevens, I had secured a graduate assistantship at the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana, went there, got a master's degree, and then research, research. And then I auditioned for something called the University Resident Theater Association, and uh, they have like local, regional, national auditions. By the time you audition at the national level, you're actually auditioning. It's, it's like the NFL draft. You know, you're auditioning for the heads of theater departments all over the country who have resident theater companies, and they're looking to populate those with actors, you know, and long-term engagements. And so I did that, and I managed, I got scouted, and I ended up at Wayne State University in Detroit uh, as a member of their Hillbury Classical Theater Company, which is what I was looking to do at the time, and this actually ties into Star Trek, uh, because... By that point in my learning and training, I decided, okay, I've done the Willie Lomans and the Our Towns and this and that. How about some Shakespeare? You know, I don't, because everybody, actors who don't know tend to be like, oh, Shakespeare, oh my God. Well, I wanted to crack that nut and see what it was about. And uh, the uh, Wayne State uh, Repertory Company gave me the opportunity to do that. And I chose it precisely because that that was the focus. So I spent three years at the Hillbury Theater, that was the name of the theater, uh, doing basically Shakespeare, Sheridan, Moliere, the classics, you know. Um, and uh, yeah, that was boot camp. That was boot camp. But I, I learned I learned me some Shakespeare. And now I'm going to really fast forward a whole bunch of years because that Shakespeare learning really served me as an actor once I got into the real world. Um, of, of the profession, you know, <laughs> and in a way it was a good thing and a bad thing because once I really first, uh, after there, I moved to New York to, you know, be a New York actor. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that, about how you got to New York. 
Yeah, you know, actually, because somewhere along the way, I also happened to get married, and um, and I and I married uh, a New Yorker, and so when I was done there, it was like, do you go to California? Or do you go to New York? And she was from New York, so she wanted to go home. So we went to New York, and um, I spent over a decade there. And it is true, New York is mostly about theater. Um, if I live there, I can confirm that. <laughs> are you are you a native? I am. Yes. Oh, okay. All right. Well, then, you know, uh, I, I, I ended up in Hell's Kitchen, okay? Nice. I ended nice. up in Hell's Kitchen when it was still Hell's Kitchen. <laughs> Before Daredevil moved in and cleaned the place up, yeah. That is correct. Yes, yes. Before there were ferns in every windows and, and, and things like that. But, I mean, but but then you get into the, the real industry and the real business and a whole bunch of realities that you never get taught in university. Yeah, the practical real. side of performing. Yes, and also things like tab casting and the fact that, oh, you thought I literally had a casting director say to my manager when I had come back from an audition for something, called her up and said, why is he trying to be white? Because, you know, I had trained speech and that's how I spoke, you know. And then I, I, I think this was the 70s in New York when the shows being done were, you know, like Kojak and stuff like that. The, you know, and, and, and the parts for ethnic people were all the bad guys, you know, and all the, you know, hey, what's, and, and I, I, I couldn't do that. I, I, I'd go to auditions and go, yes, this is going, this is going very badly. Give me the drugs. And I'm just like, I'm just like go away, go away, <laughs> you know. And, and it took me a minute to figure out that I actually had to dumb it down in order to get hired. But the salvation was theater, and specifically classical theater. Because back in those days, uh, there was the, the emergence was coming of, of what they call the regional theater movement. Now there's regional theater all over the place, but... Again, I'm back in the 70s and so, and it was still kind of like this interesting little movement that was happening in professional theater where different cities were having their own theater companies and their own, you know, whatever, and they would bring in actors from New York, and they were performing mostly the American canon, the classical canon, Shakespeare and stuff. And so where I couldn't get arrested in New York to go and mug the little old lady, um... I could get hired to go to places like Hartford, Connecticut, you know, or Springfield, Massachusetts to do theater, well-spoken theater, classical theater, you know, and that kept me going for a long time. And I I, I keep circling back to Star Trek because (laughs) then years later, when I did come to to Los Angeles and I started working in L.A. and doing films and stuff like that, I was fortunate enough to do a production again of Shakespeare at the Mark Taper Forum, which is the big, you know, resident uh, theater here. And I was in a production of um, Richard II, um, starring Kelsey Grammer, um, which was interesting. Um, Actually, Richard Thomas was originally cast, but he had to leave and whatever. And then we got Kelsey and it was great. But doing Richard II at the taper, I met in the cast an actor named Armin Shimmerman. And we became good friends, et cetera, et cetera. And Armin's a great guy. And right around the time that uh, that production was ending, they were casting Deep Space Nine. 
over at Paramount, and Armin got cast. He ended up as a regular on DS9 playing Quark, you know, the bar the bar owner, et cetera, et cetera. And then uh, about a year afterwards or something, I had an audition. I went in and I read for them, and uh, I read for Klingon, and, and I got cast. And, uh, and I'm like, oh, my God. And then I called Armin, and I said, okay, Armin, uh, look, I'm going to be doing your show. Um, what's the secret? Tell me, like, what's the Star Trek acting, you know, thing? How do you do it? And he said, Carlos, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it at all, because you are going to be just fine, because you know how to do Shakespeare, you know. And in fact, he was right. You know, I've, I've spoken to a lot of actors who come from Shakespearean backgrounds, and they all say Star Trek is very, very Shakespearean in all of its elements. And it's it's really cool that you kind of just discover that as well. And we will definitely dive into that in a little bit, because uh, I'm definitely going to pick your brain about that. But uh, I would like to ask, I read that you uh, did some work with Rita Moreno when you came to New York. <laughs> and I'd love to hear about what it's like being in a production with Rita, because that is royalty right there. Oh, I have a Rita Moreno story. <laughs> um, yeah, okay, I'll tell it. Um, Did she, you get her in trouble? Nah, nah <laughs> it, it's just funny. So I landed in New York finally, and uh, and and I I don't have an agent. I don't have, I, I'm totally on my own the first few months. And what you do is you go down every Thursday or whatever when it came out, and you buy the the latest issue of Backstage and Show Business. Those were the two publications. You know, and then you go through because they list auditions and all the all the industry stuff and eight by tens cheap and all that kind of stuff. So I saw an open call for a Broadway show um, on in backstage or whatever. Open call means anybody can go. You don't need your agent. You, know, you just show up and stand in line. So I went for this thing, and it was at the uh, Circle in the Square Theater. Uh, and it was for a play that was being brought in from New Haven called The National Health. And I went in and I waited in line and everything. I got my turn. I did whatever, my monologue or whatever. And I went home. And then I got a call and I got cast in the thing. The National Health is a play about, it takes place, it's a British play. And basically it takes, National Health refers to their health system, you know. And the play takes place in a hospital ward. And at the beginning of the play, you meet all of the patients in this ward. There's about eight to ten principal characters, whatever. And as the play progresses, you get to know them, and some die, some heal, go home, whatever. You know, it's a drama, but with lots of comedic elements in it. There was uh, a character uh, played by an actor named Leonard Fry, who was very big at one time in, on Broadway. He was in the original Boys in the Band, all that sort of thing. And he was like a head orderly kind of like the narrator. He would whiz through the ward and say things, talk to the audience. Rita Moreno was the head nurse, and she also had relationships with everything, and she kind of was cracking wise like uh, Rita does and everything. I was hired. I had, I don't even remember if I had a line or not, but I was hired as the African prince who works as an orderly, you know, and so that was the character's dilemma because he really was a prince, and here he was picking up bedpans. And so, so all of my entrances and exits sort of consisted of, come on, take the bedpan and walk off with great dignity. You know, so we're doing this and we have the run and Rita's great fun and everybody, and we, everybody got along fine. It was terrific. I got to meet Beth Midler, blah, blah, blah. Closing night comes along because Circle in the Square, it's limited runs. Uh, so it was like a 10-week run or something like that. 
Rita got hired, uh, got cast in a new play on Broadway called The Ritz, um, which had a great deal of success, took place in a steam bath, whatever. Uh, And so she had to leave uh, two weeks before the end of the run to go start rehearsals on The Ritz. So, yes, terrific. But I'll be back. I'll be back on closing night to say goodbye to everybody. So Rita comes back. It's the last night of the show. And everybody's doing the show. And I don't know if you know, there's a tradition in theater that on closing night, often uh, the company indulges in little pranks, mini pranks that they play on each other throughout the performance, you know, hopefully unbeknownst to the audience, but basically to see if they can crack each other up. And so this was quite active on closing night of the National Health at Circle in the Square. Rita was there and she was making it her business to run around backstage. She 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 behaved for about one act, you know, and sat in the house and watched the play. And then, ah, then she got busy doing things. Now, I get to my final entrance in the show, my final performance. I'm putting the African dignified prince to rest tonight. And at Circle in the Square, it's like theater in the round, you know, so there's like entrances and exits through the audience. And my final entrance was through the audience to descend in a very dignified, noble fashion. At that point, there's only one patient still surviving in the ward, and we have some kind of cryptic exchange, and then I leave with dignity and a bedpan. And I'm coming down the aisle in my full prince mode, and I'm about two steps away from the stage, and suddenly something, a hand comes out of the dark and grabs me there. <laughs> rattle, 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 rattle. You know? And I'm like, what the hell happened? You know, and I kind of stumble onto the stage completely out of character, you know, feeling my thing, uh, whatever. And just before I left, I glanced over my shoulder and I saw this little figure on all fours, crawling down the aisle, you know, away and looking back and giggling. And it was Rhea Moreno. <laughs> and when I got back up to the green room, she was beside herself. She was just laughing and she was telling everybody left and right, oh, and you should have seen Carlos. You, I grabbed Carlos by the ballies. I'm like, and I'm like, oh my God. Well, okay. How many people can say that? <laughs> you literally had your balls grabbed by an American treasure. That's pretty amazing. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And she still is. God bless her. She's still there and she's still as vital as ever. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. So that was my first experience on Broadway with Rita Moreno. <laughs> and what an experience that was that no one's going ever yeah. top. That is memorable. <laughs> So, yeah, I wanted to ask you about a few other things you did as well before we get into our Trek talk here. And uh, I was curious about one of them because this was a movie I remember watching a ton as a kid. It used to be on TV a lot. I remember seeing it like Saturday or Sunday afternoons. Uh, that was Crocodile Dundee 2. And I would love to know uh, what you did in that film. Not much. <laughs> Fair but enough. I had a great time. Okay, that one's an interesting story as well. Okay, so I'm living in New York, and I'm doing what you got to do in New York to survive, And which occasionally you would have a, a, a film audition. They were few and far between. Film and, and TV auditions, not very often in New York. So I get this audition, and I go in and I meet this, these Australians, you know, and uh, they were the, the main guys, the producer, Hogan, the Mr. Dundee, you know, and, and a couple of others, Um so I get the sides and it's, and they're, they're doing 
number two, because number one was so successful that you had to have a number two. And for number two, they actually had a budget this time because, you know, I don't know if you know the story, they actually raised the money on their own. For number one, everybody became millionaires. Now they had a big Hollywood studio behind them, big budget. And so they, they had decided that uh, this time around, maybe a plot might be a, an interesting thing to have. <laughs> you know? A plot, you say? What? No. <laughs> you, know, you mean a real story? I mean, you know. Because I don't know if you saw number one, which is yep. supremely charming, but it was just, you know, kind of like sketch comedy or something. So yeah. now this Godfather time... Godfather Part 2, it is not. Yes, yes. So this time they decided, oh, let, let's actually have a plot, which means we need to have bad guys and stuff like that. And uh, to my earlier reference, um, the bad guys at the time were... The, 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 the bad guys du jour in the 70s... No, this was in the 90s. Late late 80s uh, were were the Colombians, Colombian cocaine guys, you know. So the main bad guy in the movie was this Colombian cocaine guy who um, um, Sue is the reporter and a friend of hers who's a photographer is running around the jungle in Colombia and taking photos with telephoto and he actually captures the bad guy executing a guy he has it on film uh, we have the goods on the guy and he mails the film to uh sue in new york but then the bad guys catch up to him and they kill him and whatever but now the film is out there so the colombians have to go to new york and get sue and get the film back and that's the plot and then they go to new york and a bunch of stuff happens because they're stumble bum colombians and then finally hogan says all right let's go back to my territory you know and so they go to australia and all the colombians go to australia fools that they were and they get knocked off so i go in and i read for rico it's always rico <laughs> and i read for rico and they're like oh that's very nice callers thank you for coming in i get a call back and i'm like oh back that's good go back i read for rico again and i said oh but nice 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 i read a third time three callbacks now i'm like okay this is getting ridiculous um then i get a fourth callback <laughs> I'm like, okay, I call my man. Don't they have to start paying by now or something, a session fee, whatever? So I go to the thing, the callback, and there are four of us there. And we kind of all know each other, four Latino actors, except we're all completely different. Um, one of the other actors was Louis Guzman. Oh, wow. You know, Louis. Yeah, man. Uh, so Louis, I, that's when I met him. Uh, and then there was another guy who's very small, slight, very delicate features. You know, he was actually a dancer from Man of La Mancha. And there was another actor who also played a bunch of bad guys uh, in the 90s um, for Oliver Stone and a bunch of people. So there's the four of us there. We all look completely different. And we're all going, huh, what, 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 why? Because we, we all thought it was a callback. Then finally, the doors open, and out come the Aussies, um, Paul Hogan and his partner, John Cornell, the producer, and, and, and the, the costume lady. Oh, boys, thanks for coming in. We're so excited to have you here. This is Norma. She's the wardrobe designer. She's going to take your measurements. And, oh, it's going to be a lot. Of, and we're like, measurements, costume, what, what does this mean? And apparently what it was is that the four of us, we had been the four finalists for RICO. And they liked us all, but only one could play Rico, but they decided to bring all of us along. So we were going to be the gang, you know, and that's how I got the part. 
this is a kind of sidebar, but this is uh, why actors suffer and, and, and become drunks. <laughs> I found out later that the reason I didn't get the part, even though I was in very, very strong consideration for it, was because I was just too damn big. Because if you watch the movie, there's a plot point towards the end when Hoggs is knocking off the Colombians one by one that he actually captures Rico and forces him to trade clothes with him. And then he shoves him out there where his men are all waiting with the guns and Rico's own men shoot him because he's dressed like Hogan. Hogan is a little guy. <laughs> I'm a really big guy. And so it was one of those things like, oh, you were so good. You were so wonderful. You're so, but you're too, you're too, too damn big. So it's like, yeah, what are you going to do? You know, it, it, there's a lot more involved in casting than just, you know, your wonderful talent. Anyway, my agent calls me and says, these Australians are crazy. They want you to be in their movie, but they won't say what part they want you to play. How am I supposed to negotiate? And I said, I, so what? You know, I said, well, what, what's the deal? What, you know, says, well, it's, it's full. Uh, you know, you're, you're going to get paid. Everything is first class. It's two months location in Australia. It's whatever. I'll do it. I said, you know, it's not what, bad. What's the, what's the deal? So I went off to Australia for two wonderful, wonderful months with this Australian company, with Paul Hogan and all of them, the, the whole Crocodile Dundee family, and they were absolutely wonderful. And the studio did treat everybody the same way, first class, whatever. Uh, as a, and it kind of ruined me because it was the first real feature film that I was involved in, like, you know, for the whole thing. And it was so high end, so much fun. That it, it just, and then, and the whole thing culminated with the red carpet opening at the Chinese theater in Hollywood, uh, limo, everybody gets their own limo. It was just a wonderful, wonderful experience and, uh, uh not quite ever been repeated again. But, but so I had, I think I had one or two lines in the whole movie, just kind of the, 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 my, my, my thing was to, you know, walk around and look mean you know, look Colombian and mean and, and shoot guns and stuff. I was like, sure, fine, it's terrific. And then we'd all go back and to base camp and party. Yeah, it sounds like a pretty awesome production. And, uh, yeah. you know, I haven't gotten to see that movie in a, such a long time, and it's hard to find now online, sadly. Um, but I can tell you this, Carlos, I did do my research. I was trying to watch you in as many things as I could, and I was able to find something that's kind of obscure. Uh, and I sat through the whole thing. <laughs> You'll You're be proud dangerous. Of me. Uh, yeah, you yeah, dangerous. No. <laughs> I got to ask you, Return of Superfly. <laughs> For folks who are listening to the audio version, the face that we just saw went from, like, happy to, oh, God, no. Uh, yeah, so I found the movie, and, like, yeah, I had to see that, because I was like, Return of Superfly? How do they make Return of Superfly? And, uh, yeah, it's out there. If anybody wants to find it, you can figure out ways to do that. But, yeah, the reason I want to ask you about this movie is not because it's, like, some amazing masterpiece. I know it's, it's, it is what it is, but, like, there's got to be a story attached to that, and I would love to hear... What you can remember from making that film? Oh Lord, not a whole hell of a lot. Uh, by that by that choice, was... by repressing the thoughts, or uh, just <laughs> <laughs> well, you just took me from the sublime, <laughs> brought you down to earth. Yeah, you know, right, crashed to earth. Um, it was very very low budget. Um, I think that was the last project I did in New York. I was already committed to uh, the, the moving to LA and the whole thing. Uh, my bags were packed, whatever. And then it was just one of those last minute things that came along. 
Um, I don't even think I, I don't remember if I even auditioned for it, you know, because there is a point where you get to, you have a certain number, you, you do get offers. Sometimes you just get straight out offers and, and it might've been that. Uh, all I really, really vaguely remember about it was that um, the producer slash director was the original, was involved with the original one. I think his name was Sid Shore or something like that. And, and he he was he he participated in the orig original one, and ever since then had been trying to you know revive the franchise or do another or whatever. And um, and so he did. He managed to get a script and some money together, but it was very little budget. It was very very low budget, and uh, I remember so little about it. Um, but th there I was being the Colombian cocaine drug lord again. Yep, yeah, perfect tie-in. And it's like, it can't get away from being the Colombian drug lord. So, uh, yeah, and, and at, that at that point in my career, I was kind of hungry for footage because, again, I, I was, A, getting ready to come to, to L.A. I was mostly, most uh, up till then, most of my work had all been in theater, theater, theater. But I had done a little bit of, of, of camera work here and there, enough to know that I really needed to hone my chops for film acting. You know, I mean, and I'm sure you hear this a lot from uh, actors who come up in theater, and then once they start, you know, getting their feet wet in film, uh, there is a whole technique transition that has to happen. Um, uh, you know, like accepting the fact that there's a microphone right there, so you don't have to project, you know, and all that kind of stuff. So I was just looking for opportunities to be in front of a camera. And, uh, and that just sort of, it was an easy job. It came along and they said, whatever, and you're the drug lord. And, you know, I know how to do that. And um, that's kind of all I remember about it, you okay. know. And it was, and then I finally saw, you know, there's this thing when you work on a film and then you go to the cast and crew screening. And I always go to the cast and crew screening, you know, crossing my fingers you know, like, oh, please be good, please be good, please be good. And um, I have to say, I've been to more <laughs> where when it ended, I was like, oh, well, nice try, you know. And that was one of those, uh, you know, when I finally saw it, I was like, eh, well, okay, whatever, let's move on. Yeah, no, that's about it. I don't have really a lot to say about it or, or remember about it. Um, yeah, it just was a thing. Yeah, that, yeah that's no. all I wanted to find out really about that film because it's such a weird little thing on your resume, and it's just like, why, why would they make a sequel to that film in the first place? But that was, I made you suffer through Return of Superfly, so I'm not even going to bother asking you about Lorenzo Lamas and Renegade. I think I've made you suffer enough. Uh, <laughs> let me ask you about one thing that is super cool that I was like so excited to find your resume and rewatch. Uh, you were in Speed. You were in Speed, man. That's so cool. Uh, you got to work directly with Keanu Reeves because you were on the bus. You were one of the passengers on the bus during that entire thing. Uh, so, I mean, that has to be an experience because, I mean, you're on a bus for the entire production, more or less, aren't you? Yeah, it's another complicated, <laughs> bittersweet story. Um, yeah, I'm very happy that I was in Speed, um, and I'm very happy for the success that it had. It's interesting, just about a week ago or so, I was glancing through some celebrity magazine or something, mm. and there was a, a, a an article about Sandra Bullock. Mm -hmm. and, and the question put to her was, is there anything in your career that you regret having done? 
And she said, yeah, speed two. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> yeah, you know. Because I remember at the time that was announced and everybody went, what? A cruise ship? You go from an out-of-control speeding bus and then you're going to be on a boat? You know, going eight, nine, whatever. Speed two, but, return of the superfly. Yes, I know. Hello. No, you know, okay, here, I'll, I'll, here's the deal with, with speed. I really enjoyed the experience. I, I um, oh, God, I'm going to get serious. Um, okay, what happened with speed is that what you saw in the theaters was not the original script. Hmm. Um, the original script, when I read it, when I got it, when I was auditioning for it, was killer. It was so exciting. It was a page turner. I don't really enjoy reading scripts. Uh, to me, it's like, oh, it's, it's a chore that you have to read a script. I remember when I read the script for Speed, it was like, my God, I did it at one sitting, just turning those pages, turning those pages. It was so damn exciting. I will wager to this day that it was just as exciting as the final product. But what happened? Um the original script as written and as auditioned for and as cast for and as put into production with was an ensemble piece. So there was like a real violent moment of come to Jesus that we all had to go through about a week into rehearsal because we'd been reading the script and whatever and discussing scenes and getting to know each other. And then one day we come in after the weekend and, and the producers are all cheerful and putting on happy faces and going, guess what, guys? We have the new rewrite. Oh, my God. It's so exciting. It's so. So what we're going to do today is that we're going to they're handing out scripts. We're all going to sit around. and We're going to read the new version. Yay. And so we sit and we start reading and we start reading and we start reading. And we start reading. And all of our parts were gone. Cut to the bone. So you guys went so, from being 12 angry jurors to waiting for Godot. Yeah. We went from, I'll tell you what we went from. Uh, I don't know if uh, how much of a, of a cinephile you are. I don't know if you know uh, an old Hitchcock movie called Lifeboat. Deep Have cut. you ever seen that film? Deep cut, yeah. <laughs> It's it's set during World War II in the in the North Atlantic and the U-boats and the torpedoes and the whole thing is is that this this ship gets sunk and in the aftermath a group of people manage to all scramble onto one lifeboat totally crowded and by sheer coincidence they pick up another survivor who turns out to be the captain of the submarine that sank them so now you have these people stuck out in the North Atlantic crowded into this lifeboat in the middle of nowhere, having this life and death situation, and they must all work together to figure out how the fuck they're going to get out of this thing. That was the original speed. Wow. All those people on the bus were principals, and they all had stories and relationships and hero moments and, you know, showcase scenes and stuff like that. And it was just as exciting. And, and it was funny. And it was great. And we all auditioned for that. And we all got cast in that. And we all worked out our deals based on that. And then uh, a week into production, it got rewritten into, you know, I used to call it Muffy and Buffy, Save the World, and all those idiots screaming in the back of the bus. Because we all had to, well, make that decision. What are we going to do? 
you know, there was kind of like a palace revolt among the actors because everybody thought, wait a minute, I'm an extra now. That's not what I signed up to do. That's not the deal I made. And so everybody had to like, you know, have their come to Jesus thing and um, decide what to do. I didn't want to do it. I actually went to the um, director and I said, you know, I don't think I can do this movie anymore because um, in spite of all the Colombian cocaine drug lords and everything in my resume, I'm actually, I've actually counter um, weighed that throughout my career by being an activist. You know, the last six years I was in New York, I ran a nonprofit service organization to advocate for actors, for better roles for actors, for better representation for actors, for better positive uh, representations on screen of Latinos. I have a long history of doing that. Even now, as we speak, I'm in the process of producing a film festival that's going to happen in a couple of months to showcase Latino art and work and capacity and talent, et cetera, you know? And then when I came to Hollywood, I was like, I want to do positive things. And what excited me about the original role in, in, in Speed was that it was a hero and he was a positive guy. He was a working guy. He had a wife that you met, you know, uh, and he had a sense of humor. It was just a wonderful showcase role. And again, a role model for a Latino. And then I was lucky because after the rewrite, I still had about four lines left. And one of them was, yeah, you fucking motherfucker. And I'm like, so I went to the director and I said, you know, I really, really don't think I can do two months of this. Uh, you know, it's just it's just not where my head is at, where my spirit is at right now. And uh, I, I really feel let down. And um, so I think I'm going to have to step away. And then he spoke to me and he said, well, you know, I am upset as well because the studio is doing this and they've taken away my movie, et cetera, et cetera. I said, but I, I will promise you this. Um, I will do everything that I possibly can in post-production and editing to, to put as much back as I can. And I knew that that was entirely possible because by then we had already had the, um, the cinematography plan explained to us, which was that we really were shooting on moving buses. The entire thing really was shot in motion. This presents very specific technical challenges to how the heck do you do that when you've got a bus and 500 cars with extras running up and down this freeway and stuff. And so every time you have to go back to number one, it's a whole thing. So he had designed, he was a DP before he was a director. So in every single setup, there were at least three cameras rolling, sometimes five, you know. So you knew he was going to end up with a mountain of footage to go through in post-production. So he said, you know, I'm going to do my best to restore as much of the characters and things as I can in post-production. And if you trust me with that, I would really appreciate it if you would stay with the production. So I, I, I agreed. And we shook hands and I went ahead and I did the movie. And then, you know, and then, then you show up to work every day and you do the best you can. And we were on that damn bus for two months and, and, and we had a good time and it was party and uh, nothing personal with anything. Uh, you know, I mean, Sandy and 
Keanu at the time were not exactly powerhouses that could stand up to the studio and stuff. They were doing their job as well. Um, and the, the 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 joyful part about it is that there was no ego, there was no nothing. I fell in love with both of them. Uh, he's a lovely, lovely man, and so dedicated. And she is she is what you see, you know. She's and and it was interesting because it made for a wonderful chemistry because. Since we were on this bus that always moved and went five miles down the road on every take, there was no such thing as like, okay, it takes over. It's like, well, I'll be in my trailer, you know, come get me. No, 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 you're in the bus. <laughs> you know, and we would all be locked up in that bus for hours on end. And so there was no choice but get to know each other, get along, socialize. You know, and she broke the ice, you know, she would do things in between. She'd tease people, tell jokes, throw paper, and poor Keanu was in the corner trying to learn his because he was he was studying, um, he was prepping to do Hamlet up in Canada right after that. And so he had his dog-eared copy of Hamlet in his back pocket and he'd be trying to be serious, but we wouldn't let him. And we we had a fun, we had fun. We had a great time, it was a great experience. That was yet another red carpet premiere at the Chinese theater with the limos and all that kind of stuff. And yeah, and then it went on to become this big, huge hit. Um, so yeah, all good and well. The only reason that to me it's a little, well, disconcerting is because I didn't start making movies until I was in my 40s. Uh, I spent all that time in New York uh, doing theater. And then I've learned a few things about the industry, such as like, hey, you want to be a movie star, you better do it when you're still young and pretty and beautiful and stuff. Um, and then you add to that the whole of complications of being an ethnic actor and blah, 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 and, you know, and Colombian cocaine and stuff. And what I learned is that, you know, you don't really get that many opportunities at the big ring, you know. And I, when I look back on my career, I would say that I, 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 had, I had two shots at it. You know, and Speed was one. And the other one was another movie that I did with Taylor Hackford, uh, which is actually the one that will follow me to my grave um, because I have a huge fan base from that. <clears throat> but the movie was a failure at the box office for a whole bunch of other reasons that can be discussed. But I kind of feel like, wow, I had my two shots at the ring and I missed on both counts. So, all right. But life goes on. We're here today. And we're happy, and we're doing this, and that's my speed story. You can cut it out if you want. <laughs> Definitely not. No, I mean that's a, that's a very true experience that you had there. I mean that is your truth. And you know, I've spoken to a lot of Latino actors, a lot of people of color who are performers who grew up, or not grew up, but you know, who, who performed during that same era, and they've all had the same shared experience you're talking about now. Where you know you're a Shakespearean trained actor, but the roles you're given are drug dealer number one, thug number two, and it just doesn't do any justice to anybody. And you know, here we are now, we're doing this interview in 2022. From your perspective, have things gotten better? Yes, they have. They definitely have. I mean... <clears throat> Let me follow up with that, too. In fact, just, you know, what, what would, would you say would make things ideal? What would be the best thing possible for people of color and the world of performing? Do you know what? I just kind of have this sort of, like, little insight, not, you know, or whatever you want to call it, little epiphany. epiphany. Um, just very recently, because... Um, <clears throat> We always get into these beefs now about like, well, why is he playing that part? He's not really that or whatever. Lou Diamond Phillips wasn't really a Chicano and on and on and on. This goes on and on. 
Now, yes, I think we have moved past the times when it really was egregious, you know, like, why is Mickey Rooney in Japanese makeup with the big teeth, you know, and whatever the heck he was, and or or even Marlon Brando, why, what was he doing in Flower Drum Song, or playing Zapata, whatever. So we, we can have that discussion over and over and over ad infinitum. I say that in the long, broad picture of it all, things have gotten so much better. So much has changed. You know, the opportunities are better. The better roles are being written. Now you have the Latinos, you know, solving crimes on CSI and, and, and on and on and on, you know. And even now they're in Lord of the Rings, which I know there's pushback because there were no black elves. Shut up. <laughs> you know, and uh, and so there, recently there was this uproar. No, my Latino friends are going to hate me. Because it was announced that there was a movie being made, and Fidel Castro is a main character in the in, in the film, and that the producers and directors had chosen James Franco to play the young Fidel Castro, and it's like, oh my God, no, sacrilege! This cannot be, you know, and on and on and on. And the fact of the matter is that, first of all, the 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 people behind it, uh, the, the the creatives behind it, uh, half of them are Latinos. Um, and if you and and in the story, uh, it's the young Fidel Castro. And if you look at pictures of the young Fidel Castro without the beard, and James Franco, uh, they're twins, <laughs> you know. And it's like whatever. So I was like, you know what? I can't. I can't have this conversation. It's like. Yeah, it's uh, I don't know, but then I, I I clicked on Shakespeare because I thought you know, come to think of it, how come nobody jumps up in the middle of a performance of Hamlet and goes that actor really isn't Danish? I mean, it's like nobody. I played Romeo for two years, you know, when I was in Detroit. Nobody ever leapt up and go, he's not really Italian, because. That's not the standard. That's not that's not the standard by which it is being judged. It's much more to do about the ability, the technique, the dominion of the medium, the language, do you know? And I mean, to me, that's a much cleaner standard. When I was in New York, towards the end, in the theater community, one year they did something called the non-traditional casting project because this the, the that issue has always been with us. And for the non-traditional casting project, they get all of the theater companies in New York. I mean, from the top to the bottom, you know, the New York Shakespeare Festival down to the little hole in the wall off off Broadway plays. And the Broadway theaters yielded their houses. You know, this took place over like a three-day weekend. And Actors of all stripes and levels in the profession. I remember James Earl Jones uh, was one of them. And they put on scenes from different plays, specific, and the only, the only, uh, the only uh, barometer for casting was, would the casting of a particular ethnicity or individual or accent or whatever it is really destroy and distract from the playwright's intent? Because yeah, you don't you don't want to take the audience out of it either, you know. And so it was great. It was like three days of, of performances and panel discussions and symposia about non-traditional casting, which was a new concept at the time. As in, 
give the best qualified actor a shot at the role. You know. And the New York theater community got together for three days and watched scenes from all kinds of stuff. I think I saw James Earl Jones doing Big Daddy. You know, cat on a hot tin roof. With a mixed race ensemble. You know, give it, it didn't matter. <laughs> you know, it was like he brought the goods. Everybody did, you know. So it's like, to me, it's a whole complex mixed bag. And you can't really just reduce it to like, well... He's not the right ethnicity or he's not the right nationality. I think that's oversimplifying the thing. And it's and it's stealing something from the capacity of the artist. Negating it's like basically you're looking at someone who is presenting as a certain color. And that's yeah. kind of what goes on screen. On the same token, it's kind of like the role that James Franco has taken is a role that could have been a Carlos Carrasco. It could have been a person of color who could have been in that role. So it's like it's a complicated yeah. thing. I, it is complicated, and I, I totally get that. I know that. I know that. But, you know, but I mean, I've been on the receiving end of that as well. Hmm. You know, I mean, I remember one time, a long time ago, I was in a theater production at those regional theaters. I was a, in, a, in a production of something called Black Elk Speaks, which is a really good play. Uh, and it's about the Native American history of genocide and whatever. And it's like that story as told through the mouth of this old chieftain named Black Elk. And it's acted out. The, the conceit is that there's a group of Indians sitting around the fire, uh, you know, and telling the stories. And they all get up and act out the parts. And the parts are, of course, everybody from General Custer to whatever, to Chief Crazy Horse Sitting Bull. And I was cast in that theater production um, as Crazy Horse. Because as written, well, first of all, Crazy Horse is a very special, intriguing character. And as written in that script, really a demanding um, role that really called for a lot of facility. I auditioned. I always go, I audition for these things. And I got cast as Crazy Horse. And then suddenly I found myself in this production playing this role that I was trying to honor and do the best I could with. But a great percentage of the um, of the cast was Native American, as they should be. It's their story. In fact, the 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 ideal situation for the writer was that he wanted to have a completely Native American cast, you know, acting out this story. They couldn't get him. Um, they had auditions. This was in New York. This went on for a long time, and particularly this particular role seemed to be so specifically like whatever. I do weird well. Um, so I ended up playing Crazy Horse, and then I kind of got a lot of pushback from the other actors, because how dare I? And and, and I understood it, because Crazy Horse is a major, major figure, you know, uh, not only uh, militarily, but also spiritually and religiously. Uh, but, like, guys, I'm an actor, okay? I got cast in this. I'm not, you know, I don't... Do the process. I don't do the casting. I don't do the surveys. I don't know who's out there. Whatever. I'm an actor who got hired to do a part. So it's complicated. Yeah. I and mean, we're not going to get an answer. We're not going to be able to solve this problem here on this podcast today. So I think I'll put a pin in it for now by just saying I would very much look forward to seeing Carlos Carrasco play Gandalf in the next Lord of the Rings. <laughs> yes. Do you know I read that that Sean Connery was was offered that? Really? <laughs> um, yeah. And then he... he, he uh, there was some conflict. He couldn't do it, you know. Speaking uh, of Sean Connery, the man who goes in the Highlander to play a Spaniard. 
That's right. That's right. You know, of course, you would have mastered the accent, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and before any of us get canceled, we're going to move on. <laughs> okay. All right. Trek Untold will return momentarily. Trek Untold is sponsored by Triple Fiction Productions. Celebrating 15 years in business in 2023, TFP creates 3D-printed Star Trek and sci-fi-inspired items that fit into any collection. Whether you're a cosplayer who wants a Starfleet phaser, a Bajoran tricorder, or a Klingon dagger, or a toy collector looking for that special accessory or diorama to make your figures truly stand out, Triple Fiction Productions has exactly what you need. And for you figure fanatics, that includes products that are the perfect size for Galoob, Mego, Playmates, and everything in between. All products are 3D printed in the U.S., with new designs constantly being updated on their website. Repeat customers can sign up for TFP's loyalty program for free, which is a great way to save money as you build your collection. Repeat customers can sign up for TFP's loyalty program for free, which is a great way to save money as you build your collection. Repeat customers can sign up for TFP's loyalty program for free, where the more you order, the more discounts you receive. TFP also has a pay-what-you-want section, where clearance or misprinted items are available at a discounted price. Best of all, every product can be shipped worldwide. As a special bonus for listeners of this show, Trek Untold has a special discount code just for you. Enter UNTOLD10 at checkout for 10% off of all orders with no minimum purchase required. That's 10% off using Untold 10. To see all of their products, head to triple-fictionproductions.net. Or to stay up to date on their newest products, find them on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Triple Fiction Productions, where something is only impossible until it happens. Have you ever watched a YouTube video and said you wish you could do what they were doing? Whether it's the filming, the production, the editing. Maybe you listen to your favorite podcast and you wondered how they put that show together. How they got that great sound quality. What gear they use. How much does it cost to get started? Or maybe you checked out a video or read a book about one of your favorite entrepreneurs and it made you say, I want to live that life. I want to do what they do. Then check out my podcast, Toys and Tech of the Trade. I'm Rich Butler, and I've been making podcasts for almost two decades, speaking with experts across all fields to get to the bottom of the hows and whys of their achievements. Each week, I sit down with these amazing people who have carved their own path in life and share the gadgets, the gear, and the tech that they rely on to create their content, the methods that they use to run their business, and the habits and trends that are part of their daily routine and their way of life. And all of that, of course, gets put together to make them successful. We pull back the curtain on the process to help you understand what these people do differently so that you can draw inspiration and get ideas and be inspired so that you can take action today. This podcast is inspiring, educational, it's enlightening, and most of all, it's a lot of fun. I want you to join me on this journey so that you can use the tools and advice shared in this podcast to level up your business or creative endeavors, giving you all the tips, tactics, and tools so that you can transform what you're doing from a side hustle into a full-time lifestyle where you can collect a paycheck for doing what you love. Check out Toys and Tech of the Trade wherever you listen to podcasts and check out the RageWorks Network at RageWorksNetwork.com for more info on this podcast and all of the many other great shows that we have on the RageWorks Podcast Network. That's Toys and Tech of the Trade with some assembly required.
All right, so Carlos, let us beam into our Star Trek discussion now. We have a lot to talk about here. Uh, we already alluded to some stuff about it a little bit earlier in this interview here, but yeah, let's begin with your very first appearance, and that was as Degore the Klingon in Season 3, DS9, The House of Quark, one of like the best episodes of that season, and such a good episode in general. Mm. Um, so let's just talk about how you got cast in this role. Do you remember what the audition was like to be a Klingon? Did you know you were going to be a Klingon? Yes, definitely. You know, I mean, that was like your standard audition. Uh, boy, that was back in the days when you used to get in your car and drive to the studio and pick up the sides and go home and study them and then drive back the next. Now everything's online. Uh, self-tape. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I know. Um, no, that I, I did start to tell you a little bit about the story then because I auditioned and I got cast and everything. And then I called my friend Armin that I, you know, we had been doing Shakespeare at the Mark Taper. And I said, what is the secret to um, to Star Trek acting? And he said, don't worry, you're going to be fine because you're a classical actor. And indeed, that proved to be true because the skills you learn um, doing uh, the classics, and by that I'm, I'm referring to the vocal skills, the elevated language, the crisp diction, all of that sort of stuff just tr- prepares you to be in that world because, you know, the the the, the dialogue uh, and all the terminology and dilithium crystals and all that kind of stuff, it's all very, very elevated language. That's on, that's on, one, on the diction side, but then just purely on the physical side. I remember... The first time going into that makeup, well, yeah, I started to say before, about a week or so before uh, the actual um, shooting dates, uh, I had to go in and get fitted uh, for prosthetics. You know, they did the face mold and everything and the teeth, uh, you know, because they had to make Klingon teeth for you and everything. So just think about that right there. You're going to be performing with some apparatus in your mouth. Just start right there. Then the makeup. Becoming Degore took three and a half hours in the makeup chair. Um, and that was before all the capes and furs and things came on. And I remember the makeup people saying, you know, not all actors can handle this um, because it, it just freaks them out. And, and because it's heavy. You feel layers and layers and stuff coming on, and then the forehead is glued and and all that, you know, and it just keeps getting heavier and heavier. And again, going back to doing classical theater, you have learned to do that, you know, because if you've ever performed at an outdoor venue doing the Scottish play, you know, at sunrise with with a sunset with with the big capes and the broadswords and everything, you're accustomed to having 50 pounds of crap on top, you know, on you and figuring out how to act through all of that. You know, there are actors that just completely become smothered by it and they just, they, they freeze up. They cannot do it. You have to, there's a certain kind of rising up that has to happen physically in order to perform those roles and to speak them as well. And that's kind of what Armin was talking about because the classical training, came in handy right away. I mean, you, it's the only way that you cannot naturalistically perform a Klingon. You know, you can't, <laughs> you know. 
I mean, you I have, have to, to tell you, even just t- looking at your performance and now what you're telling me, like, I was going to even ask you about, like, once you got in that outfit, you were, like, twirling that cape around. It was very, very theatrical. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, yeah. It, it, you know, and, and they loved it. That's it. That's it. More, more, more. And I guess the proof was in the pudding because then they brought me back. Um, because I think before I was all done, I did about six different episodes of Star Trek. Because uh, the one... um the one good thing about all that makeup is that nobody knows it's you. Yeah. So, uh, so they, it's easy for them to bring you back if they like you and if they figured out, oh, this guy can handle it. He can carry all that stuff around, um, you know, and and deal with the makeup. So, uh, yeah. So after after that, when I, I went back, I think I was a Klingon three times, and then I was a big, huge, furry thing, Chewbacca-looking thing. Uh, and then I was a lizard looking thing in, in some other episode. Um, you know, but, but the Degore was memorable. That was the, that was the first one that I did. And it was, um, it, it was memorable for a lot of reasons. First of all, just the experience of doing it and being a Klingon. And it's kind of like one of those like check boxes that you can say, I've been a Klingon, just can do that. You know, why well, once I did a movie for, um, um, Roger Corman. You know, some maybe you dug that one up. <laughs> in, in your, did you find that one? No, okay, <laughs> that's okay. You're not missing much. But I just, but I, and yet I was happy to do it because I thought, aha, now I can say I've been in a Roger Corman movie. Have you? Uh, you know. So, but but the the gore doing that episode, it was great. And one, there was one really special day when we're working. Well, first of all, the other thing I remember is that. We were shooting something like in the late fall or something, September, October, around there, where in Los Angeles, as you know, that's when it can get really hot, you know. And on this particular week that we were shooting, it was boiling hot. I mean, it was like the Santa and winds or something were going on. And there we were with all of that stuff and everything. Uh, on and they, they gave us each little those little fans to hold you know and and, and you know, because it was just incredibly brutally hot um but one day we're sitting around waiting for a shot or something and suddenly there's a buzz on this on the sound stage and people are mm, 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 and you know something's going on it's like uh, buzz 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 and it's like what are, are, are the big bosses here what what's going on and it was because we were we were we were let know made uh, to know that a special visitor was on the set, and he wanted to come and say hello. So we're like, okay. If I was with Armin, and then we're looking, and then around the corner comes this automated wheelchair, and special visitor rolls up to us, and it was Stephen Hawking. Wow. Yeah, because we were told he's he was a huge fan. And he always followed the show. And from time to time, he would drop in, you know, just to do a little visit and stuff like that. And uh, and we won the lottery that day. Wow. <laughs> and he came on the set to just, just say hi and, and, and whatever. And so I have a picture. I have a photo of, of, of Armin and I, you know, on either side of the wheelchair um, with Mr. Hawkins. And I remember feeling so awkward because... You know, he was in the chair, and um, and he spoke through this computer that he had. Um, and, and I remember saying, well, it's such a pleasure to meet you. I'm so honored. Thank you for coming to visit us. 
And that's what I had to say. And then I just like stared and and then nothing happened. And I was like, oh, what do I do now? And because he, you know, he just had that one expression. And then after what to me seemed an interminable amount of time, the voice came up from the chair, whatever the speaker thing that he had. Uh, when he said, you know, yes, thank you for, uh, you know, letting me come visit, whatever, whatever. And, and then I felt great relief because I mean, I just, like, yeah, you know, it was, I just, you know, you know, sometimes you're the fan, <laughs> you know, and you just get all tongue tied and everything. It was, it was a brief exchange. And then we said, can we take your picture, please? And, he says, and then the pause, I knew then the pause and he says, yeah, sure. And so we, we struck our poses and took our little photo. I still have it with uh, Armin and I with uh, Stephen Hawkins. And that was that was a real high point of, of doing that episode. And, you know, he did actually appear on an episode of Star Trek Next Generation. Yeah. yeah. He played himself. <laughs> I know. I know. Yeah, no, he was part of the family, you know. So, yeah, that was... Um, that was a good experience. That was great. You know, I, I always enjoyed doing the shows. Um, although the makeup. Mm. That's... Your episode especially is filled with makeup. This one in particular, because it's all the Klingons. Plus you got Quark running around there. Um, so, yeah, I imagine it was a busy, busy day in the makeup chair. And, you know, on top of it, I'd love to know what was it like for you to do that? I mean, because had, had you ever done any prosthetics like that before in your career at that point? No, I, I can't say I had. Um, and how much did that affect how you performed? I mean, clearly you were going with it, but I mean, how much flexibility did that require if you mentally to kind of change what you do to become a Klingon? I'll tell you, uh, <clears throat> over the years, a lot of what, how I perform is um, is to focus on the voice. Maybe it is because of all those years of classical acting and so forth and so on. But I do have an acting, uh, I, I do employ an acting process that is very much focused on the vibration of the vocal resonances. Is and, it something you learned from Kristen Linklater? Yes, sir. Oh, Mr. Homework. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Do, how much about Kristen Linklater do you know? I don't know a ton, actually. And I, I do want to know how, how she ties in here in this, uh, in this Star Trek. Here's a good example of what she did. Well, Kristen, Kristen has her own theory about performance and finding the truth in words. And a lot of it, 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 it can begin to sound very esoteric and, and out there. But it actually makes, for me, it works. Uh, it, it really has to do with the belief that um, whew, the, every sound in the language produces a vibration. And the, 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 the wavelengths of the vibrations are different. You can have everything from staccato, you know, like the consonant sounds, you know, or the long vowel sounds, you know, whatever. And the thing about it is, is that when you, when you study with Christian, you really, really, the goal is to almost like become a guitar. Like you are the guitar. And the poet's words are the notes that you pick out a note and you twang a string and that note drops into the body of the guitar and it resonates. And then when the sound comes out, it contains truth, emotional truth. 
I'm telling you, this sounds like, uh, you know, but in a way, it's a very freeing way to work because then instead of getting into the, you know, when you study acting, you go through the whole, oh, the, you study the method, that's very American, you know, whatever, that's like, you know, from the 50s and 60s and Marlon Brando and all that. And then, of course, there are many different approaches. Every actor has to find their, their method that works for them. And often they are combinations of different things. I like Kristen's method because it is actually very simple. You know, the worst thing that can happen to you as an actor is to get in your head. And then you get in your head and you're thinking and and then that cuts you off right here. You know, Kristen's is a whole body thing. And what you want to do is engage the entire body and have it be in a state of relaxation and openness because it becomes the resonating vessel. And then what you do is that if you think of a jar, an empty jar, and then you drop a sound in there and it reverberates within the jar or like the guitar body and it produces truth. Hmm. That's a really short, you know, choppy version of some of the thought behind <clears throat> her approach. Sense, you know, yeah. I, I kind of think of like Avery Brooks and I've always noted him and a few other actors in particular who did Star Trek had sort of a musicality to the way they would do their lines. And that made them kind of very unique compared to else in the show. But like, there is something about it that uh, it does say, like you said, there is some truth to, to that kind of way of performing. Yeah. And if you study, if you study and take the, the link later workshops and stuff like that, you literally get down to little things like I was doing before of, of doing one sound at a time, you know, and, and, and playing around with, with individual sounds and trying to discover what emotion they evoke. What does that make you feel like? Like if you, and you can play around with it. If, what is the difference? If, if you go, does that feel the same as if you go, oh, oh, oh. I mean, there's a different feeling there. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So as the actor, instead of thinking like, well, what was my childhood like and the thing and what did I have for breakfast this morning and everything, if you just go for that sound. Hi. You know, just the sound will bring a lot of information with it if you can just go for the sound. So to get back to your question, you got tons of makeup and prosthetics and things like that on whatever. And it's like, oh, my God, and it's hot and it's 100 degrees. How the hell do you act? Well, the salvation is in finding the sound, going for that sound. What What is the, you know. Not what is my line, literally, like, is there a comma? Is there, no, what are the sounds that are supposed to be coming out right now? And to me, that often is the way. Well, I don't know if you remember, but what was the sound of the Klingon that you found? And how did you find that sound? Well, the sound that you find by simply reading the text out loud. A script is not meant to be read silently. It is meant to be vocalized. And so that's the first step. You get a script and you read the words out loud. And in that process already, there is discovery happening. They have to be organic. They have to come out well. You know, that's the, that's the first step. See, then you, you do something like, like one of, one of the things that I remember about uh, Degore was there's a scene where he um, lands Quark up against the wall. You know, you killed my brother, <laughs> whatever. And they have that scene because he's very concerned in the scene that that because his brother got killed, you know, and but but Degore wants to be sure that his honor was preserved, like that he died an honorable death. 
you know, and and then Quark assures him that, oh, yeah, 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 he no, no, really, really, you know, said, okay. And then the the button on the scene is that Degore says, remember that when you talk about my brother's death or whatever it was. And and Quark says, yeah, 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 okay, I will. And then and then Degore says, Kabla. <laughs> Which is like, I don't know what that, that's going hung on speak. But it was kind of like the, you know, make sure, buddy, don't forget it, but it's kapla. And what a wonderful sound that is. Yeah. What a what a violent, threatening sound that is. Kapla. You know, how else is it gonna come out? You know, and uh I don't know. I just play around with that a lot. I play. I, I try to. I try to um, <clears throat> take the brain out of it and go go physical. Go physical. Breath, body, sound, vibration. That's how I do it. Well, you had a lot of uh, people working with you in that episode, in particular, who kind of had to do a lot of the same thing you had to do. Had to kind of figure out how to become the Klingon, how to find ways to be that type of character. Uh, and, you know, we already mentioned Armin Sherman is in this episode. He's Quark, and you guys already have a relationship, you know, in real life. Uh, but you're also working with Robert O'Reilly, who was Gowron for many seasons of Star Trek Next Generation. Also, you had Mary Kay Adams, first time on the show. but Loved her. There. Yeah. I love to hear what it was her. like working with these folks as your scene partners. Oh, Mary Kay and I really, well, we, we got along great. Um, because again, she also came from theater. So we bounced a lot of theater stuff back and forth. Uh, plus she was just a lovely woman. They were very easy to be around, very easy to work with. Um, she moved back east, uh, actually, um, several, just a few years after that. So, so we lost, we lost contact, but, um, yeah, a lot of great people. A lot of good people on those shows. In one of my notes here, I basically just wrote Shakespearean comedy, and it's, I didn't really entirely know a lot about your Shakespearean background, but it's like, it feels like this episode was in particular meant for you to do. This is like such a perfect, hefty, meaty role. This is a Carlos kind of role. I mean, do you feel the same way about this compared to your other Trek roles? Yeah, I have to say, like, in in in, in uh, of the ones that I did, that, yeah, that was the most fun. That, because it was. It was very showy. It was very theatrical. It was very, um, you know. I also want to say one other thing about that, too, because, again, about the physicality of the acting experience, the wardrobe has a lot to do with it as well. You know, the the uh, as you're adding the layers and things, you know, you can feel the character coming on. You know, there's, there, again, it's like, it's about being attuned to to these these physical reactions to things. Everything from the sound of the words to the the feeling, the weight of the wardrobe. You know, I read an interview with um, Red Fox once, uh, where he said that the way that he found the character of Fred Sanford, you know, Sanford and Son, <laughs> that the character finally came to him when he when he put on the shoes. You know, because they had given him these big old floppy, you know, whatever. And he put on the shoes and started walking around in those shoes. And he said, ah, okay. I, I got it. I got it. I found it. I found it. It was a, you know, a certain physicality, a certain kind of information that comes from it. You know, and this, that that can be true as well with um, with the wardrobe. I think there's a point where you just accept it, that you go like, okay, 
I can neither be Carlos, the civilian, going, oh, my God, this stuff weighs so much, and it smells funny, and it's weird. Or I can just go, okay, you know what? I'm in this moment now, and this is my reality, and this feels good, and let's just go for this. And, and you just do it. There's a, you know, you step into the character, and, and you leave the whiny actor in the trailer. So you got to be a Klingon one more time in Star Trek, and that was, I believe, a season later, I think it was, uh, mm-hmm. where uh, you were a Klingon alliance officer this time. That's the episode Shattered Mirror, and that one you were basically dragging around Andrew Robinson by a chain, which I'm sure is someone's kink, but no judging. Uh, mm-hmm. And you're also sharing that scene with Michael Dorn. So again, different kind of day, uh, but what was that What was that like? What do you remember from doing that particular uh, shoot? That one was kind of uh, um, less memorable, frankly. I mean, that was... Um, in a way that the role was not as significant, you know, it was, yeah. it was, it was good. It was, you know, it was a couple of days, uh, good work. I always like being on the set. I enjoyed being with, with Michael, um, you know, great actor. Um, but I don't have a lot of, um, a, a lot of, um, greatest, uh, hits from that one. I remember a lot more about the one that I did, um, where with the big Chewbacca guy. Um, that was Voyager, yep. That's the one in uh, Fair Trade. You were Barat. That was his name. Barak, yeah. Just the space station, and uh, he gets into yes. some sort of shenanigans involving Neelix. Yes. Uh, yeah, so you, I like your description of him as being a big Chewbacca dude. That's that's pretty accurate. <laughs> Chewbacca, if Chewbacca became a businessman, basically. Right, right, right. And he was like the sheriff of the space station and running the thing and trying to keep things in order. Um, yeah, I had a lot more to do on that one. Uh, I enjoyed working with her. Uh, she was the first, yes, she was the first, um, female commander, wasn't she? First female lead. Yeah. First female Starfleet captain leading the show. Yep. Yes. Yes. And, and, and she held her own. Um, yeah, that was a good one that, that I, I enjoyed that one a lot. Yeah. Uh, and I got, I got, oh, this is so far, um. Uh, there was somebody else I ran into on that one. Is that the one that Roxanne Caballero was in? I don't know if she was still called that. Um, thinking Roxanne Dawson? Roxanne Dawson, yeah. Yep, she would have yeah. been that one too, yep. Yeah, yeah. I, I knew her, uh, I had met her prior, previously, uh, in the other movie that will follow me to my grave. Um, but she was Roxanne Caballero then, Um it was this big Latin epic movie called Blood In, Blood Out. Uh, that, that's another Hollywood story because she was on. She had a wonderful role in that. She did a lovely job. And then the movie was way too long and they completely cut her part out. So was, welcome to Hollywood. But I was so happy that she landed on Star Trek and, um, and had a good run there. Now, you do have one other on-screen appearance to want to mention, too, which is, again, back in DS9, Season 6, Honor Among Thieves, and you're Kroll. So basically, you got to play three different species in your four roles in the franchise proper. So who had the worst makeup routine? Who who was the longest? What was the most arduous one for you? They all were. Um, they all were. But you know what? All told, I would say it was it was um, Degore. Hmm. Yeah, Degore. Degore was full on because it was not only all the prosthetics and all the everything, but also just all of the heavy wardrobe. Um, you know, Chewbacca wasn't far behind because that was, you know, it's like totally immersed in hair and fur. Um, and yet I found it kind of easier to, to, to sort of move around in that, you know. Um, 
No, Degore was very, very intense, you know. Plus, also, it was my first time doing that, so I um, maybe, who knows, maybe I got, I got accustomed to it. I will tell you, when I was doing um, that one, Degore, um, with, with Armin, because we had all these scenes together and everything, um, I'll say a couple more things about the, the makeup issue, is that when you worked on those episodes, you knew you were in for extremely long days. I mean, it's not unusual for them to be 14 and 16 hour days. But there's a, and you make a lot of overtime. Uh, in fact, I recall uh, on one episode, I was already on overtime before I ever set foot on the set. You know, I mean, they're very long days. But there's a good reason for that. And it's because the, the makeup is so, so severe that they would rather pay all the overtime and everything and, and say, bring in actors for, say, two long days as opposed to four consecutive days, uh, shorter days, uh, just because of the, the makeup. Because because not only does... I remember also the first time I was made up as Degore, the makeup girl said to me when I was done, she said, now when you're done for the day, do not come back and start to take this off yourself. Don't... No, 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 no. You wait, we do it, because you will rip your skin off <laughs> because it is so severe. You know, in fact, I remember that... The, the final touches on, on the Klingon makeup was literally air, airbrushing, you know, with, with paint. <laughs> you know, it's like, so they had to remove paint from your skin and everything. But, um, yeah, they were long days, long, long days because of that, just to take care. But I started to say, I remember one day at the end of the day, I was in the makeup trailer with Armin, and he had that thing. He called it the butt head, you know. <laughs> that thing Accurate. yeah and 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 you know and he had that thing on for hours every day and i was with him uh we were by the sink as as he peeled it off and he took it off and i must have been a liter of sweat just poured out of that thing you know because he had that thing on all day long sweating 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 through his scalp and there's no place for it to go so you can imagine the poor man sloshing, you know, <laughs> liquid on his head all day long and and acting. So there's a lot of challenges. It's a, it's a great exercise in, in concentration. Yeah, and I do want to ask you too, just one more thing before we wrap up our track talk here, just going to your final DS9 appearance, Honor Among Thieves. Uh, you know, that one you're working with Colmini a lot. And you know, he's a man from the theater as well, very accomplished performer. I uh, just would like to hear if you have any memories about working with him. Just about enjoying his work. I, I, when I'm around actors like that, I love to watch their work, you know, yeah. and see their process and everything. And um, and and I'm happy to report that uh, he was just a, a, a normal, ordinary guy, you know, no no presumptions, no no big airs, no nothing. Uh, he was he was always ready to run lines, you know, go through stuff, um, talk about moments. Um, pleasant, a pleasure to work with, pleasure to work with. You know, so um, that that one was kind of fun because we were like these sleazy characters, you know, <laughs> just slinking around in the bar or whatever, wherever we were, and uh, and conspiring. And um, yeah, that was a, that was fun. That was fun. I, I would have enjoyed doing that character again because it was kind of intriguing. This lizard kind of thing guy, and um, you know, it's kind of like a Star Trek film noir kind of episode. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, that was um, that was interesting, um, and that and I remember that episode had <clears throat> you say film noir. It had that whole ambiance, you know, kind of 
darkness and uh, that's uh, that's what i remember about it a lot you know it seemed to like be in, in those dark bar kind of settings and things like that that was a good one i i thoroughly enjoyed my star trek experiences and uh very very proud and happy to have that on my resume all right so carlos as we come to a conclusion here i just want to ask you a few last things uh about some career things and let's start with this this tough question here best gig you ever had worst gig you ever had Mm-hmm. Well, best gig was Crocodile Dundee 2. Worst gig was Return to Superfly. No. <laughs> <laughs> How convenient. <laughs> I'll take it. I mean, that's the best gig. I really do rank Crocodile Dundee 2 as one of the best gigs I ever had because even though I really had very little to do, the experience itself and the people. The trip to Australia, the, 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 it was just a wonderful, wonderful life experience, life adventure. Yeah. And, uh, and, it, and it was informed by the absolute generosity of the Australians because they were like very egalitarian. There was no like pecking order. There was no, I'm the star and you're the whatever. It was like everybody was everybody. And they even were up front about it. They said, Hey, we're all convicts anyway, you know, so we don't, uh, you know, they take pride in that. Um, and, and yeah, and they were very generous. Everything was first class. I mean, very, I don't think I've had as joyful uh, an experience working on a feature film as that. It was just great, even though I, I did nothing for my career. I, had, I really didn't have a part, but, but that was really great. The absolute worst Oh my God! Um, you know, I don't. That's interesting. I can't. I can't ever say I've really like like absolutely abhorred and been miserable about. I mean, I've been in stuff that was kind of, you know, cheapo and whatever, and there were issues and problems. But um, no, man. You know, honest to God, if I'm working and I'm doing what I like to do and, you know, what my dream was, um, it's okay. It's all good. Well, let's flip that question. And how about the role that you are most proud of that you ever performed? This is another one of those stories. I, I was in a, I was in um I was in a film that never, that, that, well, didn't do well. I've been in a lot of those, but I, I was in a film called uh, Double Take. That was written and directed by George Gallo. And that was supposed to be so good um, because he had done a film that I absolutely love called Midnight Run. You know, are you familiar with that film? Uh, Robert De Niro and Charles Grodin, and he's a bounty hunter, and it's a road movie and planes and trains and all kinds of things. And um, uh, so I get, I have this audition for this thing that George Gallo is, is, has written. And he's going to be directing and everything like that called Double Take. And basically, the it, his genre seems to be boats and trains and planes and things, because that, too, was also a road movie. And it was also about mistaken identity and things like that. But the reason I enjoyed it was because I got this part. It's, we were talking before about how do you get into a role and things like that. And I was talking about how, to me, it's on the page. It's like it, it's what happens when I read it out loud. And I got this thing, and it was one scene, but it was kind of a long comedic scene. 
uh, with mistaken identity and stuff like that, where I was playing like this, um, for once I was on the proper side of the law, uh, a Mexican sheriff, marshal or whatever. So I said, I got this part, <clears throat> I read it, I got a take on it, and it was way over the top, very broad, my take. I went in there, I did the audition, <laughs> and when I was done, everybody's jaw was on the floor, like, did he just do that? Because it was so outrageous. And then I got cast. And then we went and we shot the thing. And on the day of shooting, I was like, you sure you want me to do that? No, 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 please, please. And I did that. I had a blast. It was so terrific. Everybody was so funny. I went to the cast and crew screening. The producer came up to me and I'm quoting him. He said, I am one lucky Jew to have you in my movie. I'm like, yay. And then I sat there at the cast and crew screening going, please be good, please be good, please be good. And it wasn't. And the movie album. But I had fun. <laughs> I had fun doing that. All right, Carlos, most valuable piece of advice someone ever told you about life or acting? Don't be an asshole. Good advice. I'll mm -hmm. take it. <laughs> mm -hmm. And last thing, what is the best part about being a piece of the Star Trek universe? Oh, my God. Um, immortality. Legacy. I mean, you know, and and just like to me, that's my reward is to think like I'm leaving something behind, and I'm leaving something that people are going to see over and over and over again for a long, 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 long time, and that to me is fulfilling. Well, Carlos, thank you so much for chatting with us today, telling us all about some really interesting stuff from your career, some really cool stories, uh, some stories too that it's tough to hear about speed, but I mean. You got to hug Keanu Reeves. That's pretty cool. He's uh, a cool guy. Cool <laughs> guy. And, and, uh, Keanu and Sandra, love him. Love him, love him, love him. Yeah, but again, thank you so much for sharing all these cool stories. I love hearing how you talk about things. And in fact, now that I know like your Shakespearean background, it really shows in your Star Trek work. So that's just such dense stuff. And you brought so much personality to those roles. Uh, I really can't see anybody else doing those, those roles. And I would love to see you back in the Star Trek universe. So we got to find a way to make that happen. Well, give him a call. <laughs> I'll get him on right now. But Carlos, thank you so much. Appreciate it very, very much. Thank you. Thank you. It's an honor. That's it for this week's episode of Trek Untold. Until next time, don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Trek Untold, all one word. If you'd like to directly support this podcast, please consider becoming a Patreon supporter over on patreon.com slash trekuntold, which gives you access to some great perks that can't be beat. Or pick up some merchandise from our store, or use my Amazon shop link to check out all kinds of different Star Trek merchandise. Links for all these things are in the show notes. Shout out to Triple Fiction Productions for being a key sponsor of Trek Untold. Don't forget to check them out and all of the fine folks whose ads you've seen or heard on this podcast, too. If you have any questions, feedback, or comments for the show, or would like to suggest a guest or discuss sponsorship options for any of these episodes in the future, send me a message at trekuntold at gmail.com. I hope to see you here again as we uncover more untold stories from Star Trek and beyond and get to know even more amazing people who have contributed to this ever-expanding universe. Until next time, I'm Matthew Kaplowitz, and remember, fortune favors the bold. Trek Untold is sponsored by Treksphere.com. Promoting fan-produced Star Trek content in all forms is powered by the Rageworks Podcasting Network and is affiliated with Nerd News Today.